This is Jeffrey Aaron, and welcome to today's Flying Talkers. There's an ad on TV playing, as you, as you hear this across America right now, from a company that says it can look up my dad's military record and send me details. Saw the pitch watching news that this week marks 75 years since the end of World War II. Since I was born September 10th, 1941, four years before World War II began, the thought of looking up my dad and maybe even my grandfather, he served in the first conflagration, sounded like something to do during the lockup. But the rub was they wanted 55 bucks up front to access any information. So I started to think about that. Who the hell gives up personal military records that rightfully belong to my family to somebody to sell it back to the surviving generations? So I got off of spending that money and looking up the old papers that probably don't say very much anyway, opened up the family albums and some other thoughts so this adventure was not a complete loss. I looked at my dad standing next to an F-4U Navy fighter and remembered him explaining that the airplane started up. It shook everything within 25 feet, even rattled the windows. The F-4U was a carrier fighter with gull wings that folded up the minute after it landed on board uh, an aircraft carrier moving 150 miles an hour to a full stop in five seconds. The other plus in the buyback personal data gambit was to spend some moments recalling the outstanding cargo movement of World War II by again sharing with you, dear readers and listeners, the exact time period when our industry as we know it today, albeit the modern version, was born. The China-India-Burma-Hump flights above the Himalayan mountains that moved cargo from Assam, India to Kunming, China, paved the way for air cargo to come to the rescue of Berlin three years after the end of World War II. So from those movements, air cargo was born via hundreds of surplus DC-3 and C-46 aircraft, some that were purchased for as little as a dinner tab for two at Sardi's here in New York. No kidding. You could buy a DC-3 for in the hundreds of dollars after World War II and start an airline. And lots of people did, including former pilots that flew over the hump. One named Robert Prescott. We'll get into that later. But look, for the brave people that showed the way, the greatest generation, and for everyone that served in World War II, we salute a war's best moment, the day it's over. It was over 75 years ago, September 2nd, 1945. Right after this, thanks for joining us today for Flying Talkers. Special holiday, Labor Day USA 2020. We'll be right back. Flying Talkers podcast is made possible by ATC, One World, One Global Air Cargo General Service and Sales Agent, GSSA. ATC is your key to the air cargo market, both local and internationally. ATC is the best air cargo team in the business.
Welcome back. If you want to know exactly when the defining time occurred for the beginnings of air cargo in the 20th century and what led to its development, just cast a line back 78 years ago and you'll discover that modern air cargo, believe this or not, was born in India and China. Some flights between the two countries. Today, as air cargo's future is increasingly connected to these two ancient countries, it can be said what's old is new. Or maybe you might say, as we say in New York, what goes around comes around. Well, the pandemic of 2020 is certainly putting a monkey wrench in all of our plans. So let's take some time over this Labor Day weekend here in the USA to think about some other things, other than politics, other than business, just maybe where we came from, what it all means. Maybe it doesn't mean anything, but sometimes kicking back can be a good thing. Early in World War II, President Roosevelt asked, or probably have better said directed, Army Air Force General Hap Arnold to devise a method for supplying Chinese and American troops and aviators fighting against the Japanese in China. It's good to remember, at one point in time, backs to the wall, the USA came to the aid of China, saved China from the total aggression invasion of, uh, of Japan. Americans were aiding the nationalist Chinese forces of Chiang Kai-shek, same people that went over and founded Taiwan, the great republic right now off the coast of China while American aviators operating P-40B fighter aircraft supplied by the USA were part of an all-volunteer group known as the AVG under the command of Claire Chenault. AVG, of course, stands for American Volunteer Group. Later, the world would come to know this pilot group as the legendary Flying Tigers. As the enemy closed in, military planners decide that an air route across some of the most rugged territory in the world, the Himalayan mountains, would be sustainable if they could develop a way to fly over it to supply the troops and to supply the aircraft. The route was quickly dubbed or immortalized by the heroism and the effort of the great air cargo movement that took place there and kept freedom and hope alive for millions during the darkest days of the conflict. It was known as the China-India-Burma Hump, or CBI, described as a journey that created an aerial lifeline from the Assam Valley in India to Kunming, China. China-India-Burma Hump operations took off after the Japanese closed down the overland truck route called the Burma Road as Rangoon and the country fell in early 1942. To look at it today, that vaunted and somewhat mysterious Burma Road is or was little more than a vastly unimproved artery hacked out in serpentine form in the rugged mountains, in those Himalayan mountains, but as breathtaking as the sheer cliffs were to passengers and drivers inching along the Burma Road at that time, the experience was nothing compared to the adventures of takeoff and landing first-generation all-cargo aircraft operating back and forth between India and China, carrying rubber tires and avgas and supplies and ammunition and so forth. Look, you know this, but let's review it, huh? 
The Himalayan mountains are rugged and some are as high as 14,000 feet, <laughs> two, two and a half miles high, and it lays square between the Assam Valley and Kunming. Since the Japanese controlled everything else, there was no right or left about it. They couldn't fly over here. They couldn't fly over there. They needed to come smack dab down the middle. The only way between those two cities was a very short 500 air mile flight, but it was truly hellish up over those mountains. Although today aircraft routinely fly over the Himalayan mountains, as World War II raged, the otherwise picturesque snow-capped remote peaks were a daunting challenge to airmen and their twin-engine aircraft. Flights from Assam to Kunming often would take several hours. Unpredictable weather and wind currents were a constant challenge, extending the journey for additional hours as aerial charts were drawn and redrawn to direct flights around fierce storms. Bodies were often stressed to the limit as engines beat ominously against an unforgiving sky. Aircraft would encounter up and down drafts like you wouldn't believe, falling and rising thousands of feet in almost an instant. Without warning, an airplane would be flipped over by wind currents or whipped side by side. The run quickly gained the ominous moniker Aluminum Alley. During the three plus years of hump operations, more than 167,285 trips were completed, delivering 760,000 tons of air cargo but the price was paid with 792 lives, lost aboard 460 aircraft and 701 major accidents. We'll be right back. Flying Talkers 2020 is brought to you by the people of ATC, Simply the best GSSA in the transportation business. ATC today delivers the global airline cargo business the fastest growing, most respected general service and sales organization in the world. ATC Can Do Difference creates for all ideal situations designed by people working together to win. To discover what ATC can bring to your business anywhere in the world, Contact HQ at ATC-Aviation.com or take a look and reach out at www.ATC-Aviation.com or you can call at 490-6969-80530. ATC, one world, one global air cargo GSSA. So we're back. Incredibly, 78 years later, remains of hump pilots and their downed aircraft are still being recovered. As recently as 2002, an expedition 
scaled an 18,000-foot peak, bringing back fragments and other remains of an air cargo flight from 1944 that went missing and was never heard from again until someone spotted it from the air in 1999. Not enough can be said of the heroism and sacrifice that was made by early military air cargo pilots. They were a select and intrepid breed with lion-sized courage and determination. Everyone connected in any fashion to aviation, and especially air cargo, owes the hump pilots who founded our great industry a debt of gratitude that we should never forget. The first flights over the hump carried avgas, as I mentioned, and oil earmarked to support the Doolittle raid on Tokyo in April 1942, and as mentioned, Flying Tiger's P-40B fighter operations. Those first DC-3 all-cargo flights were accomplished with passenger aircraft that were conscripted into the effort from China National Airlines, CNAC, a working partner at that time of Pan Am, and others, that's Pan American World Airways, the great international airline that was in business from 1927 to 1941. I have to realize how dated you can actually start to become when you have to explain what Pan American was. At one time, Pan American was it. If you wanted to fly anywhere out of the United States on a commercial flight overseas, in fact, until the opening of Idlewild Airport, you had to be on Pan Am or on a, one of those flying boats that uh, Pan Am lent to uh, BOAC at the time after around 1943-44. But I get ahead of myself here. Even more amazing were the pilots. They were sipping coffee in the cockpits of DC-3s a few weeks earlier at home in the USA as they flew a United flight between Chicago and Albuquerque. And then all of a sudden, there they were in the jackpot in a C-46 above the Himalaya Mountains. Well, the outstanding airplane to emerge from hump operations was the C-46A Curtis Commando. That airplane was called Dumbo by its pilots and crew after the 1941 Disney movie. Uh, the Curtis C-46A was an airplane that was out of place almost everywhere, anywhere else in the world but at the CBI theater. But at CBI, the commando lifted twice as much cargo into the sky as a DC-3. And we mentioned the total tonnage before. So you could move 11,000 pounds on Dumbo, you could move about six or 7,000 pounds on a DC-3. Just to tell you, when you see, well, those tonnage, that tonnage of 793,000 uh, uh, tons doesn't seem like a lot, but when you're lifting your weight in pounds, it certainly is a lot, and it's certainly a lot of flights. So it moved twice as much cargo as a DC-3, and uh, actually the wings, that gave it that immaculate lift were four feet wider than a B-17 heavy bomber built by Boeing. The Curtis was built up in Buffalo, New York by a consolidated aircraft. While the commando had better manners at high altitude was the deal and could haul twice the load of a DC-3, as I said. And it also had a double bubble fuselage, which offered more room and stability aloft, and in some cases, pressurized high-altitude operations at its service ceiling of 21,000 feet. But as many veterans of the CBI recalled, Dumbo was no pushover. Almost every flight was an adventure. Serving the theater it was destined to define, the Curtis Commando flew its last CBI hump flight November 25, 1945. 
You know, you should know, more than 3,100 Curtis Commandos were built serving in every theater of World War II. After the war, several carriers converted the wartime transports to civilian tasks for air cargo and passenger usage. The commando made a brief comeback during the Korean War, but was quickly replaced in air cargo and other applications by the newer C-119 flying boxcar. Uh, my colleague, the late Richard Malkin, wrote a book, in fact, in 1952 titled Flying Boxcars, which was the first important air cargo uh, book written on, on uh, flying air cargo in that aircraft. As late as the 1980s, there were more than 300 Curtis Commandos in business. Now, today, with the exception of South America and air museums and a couple of carriers, the public has mostly forgotten about the Commando opening for a love affair with the more popular DC-3. For the record, the first hump airlift delivered 30,000 gallons of avgas and 500 gallons of fuel. In 1942, aerial deliveries continued aboard what was named the India-China Ferry Command. By December 1942, with some 29 aircraft, the cargo service flights were folded into the newly formed Air Transport Command, or ATC. Volumes of air cargo that were moved across the hump formed an ever-increasing supply tide, which eventually contributed to Allied victory, an indication of how great an impact hump operations had on the fortunes of the Allies can be seen by trapping or tracking shipment numbers. In July 1942, 85 tons were moved. In July 43, 29, 16 tons flew above the Himalayas. In 1944, 18,970 tons of air cargo flew. And in 1945, the last year of operations, more than 71,000 tons of war material were delivered. Make no mistake, those shipment numbers, plus a wealth of cheaply priced DC-3 and Curtis Commandos made available after the war, fueled aviation's imagination as to a future role for air cargo. As the war ended, returning GIs once again took up their civilian lives. Pilots and soldiers would become entrepreneurs. Aircraft once used to move gasoline, oil, people in tungsten, greed tea, hand grenades, and Hershey bars were sold off, as I said, as war surplus. And more than 100 air cargo companies, including one outfit called the Flying Tiger Line, went into business in the United States and elsewhere in the world between 1945 and 1947. Later in 1948, the Russians, in a political power play they were designed to lose, surrounded Berlin, not allowing any vehicular or rail traffic to access the inland city located in the Russian zone of post-war occupied Germany. With the success of the China-India-Burma-Hump air cargo operations and Air Transport Command, now a full-time branch of the U.S. Army Air Force, air cargo was at the world's attention as the Berlin airlift saved a city of three million. And that's how it all began. We talked a bit about the C-46. I've discovered that the aircraft is in use in a couple of places, mostly in northern Canada. A company called Buffalo Airways is using a couple in regular service. In fact, they've uncovered one of Lufthansa's C-46s that was 
one of the formation of that company's cargo operation, still carries a little uh, Lufthansa logo on the front of it, uh, commemorating its uh, illustrious past. It began as a Berlin airlift aircraft. It's probably purchased by Lufthansa at some point, and now is still in daily operation, flying up into the Arctic Circle from uh, Yellowknife via Buffalo Airways. We'll have some more in a minute, so stay tuned. Thought I'd add a postscript to this little read that we just did about the China-India-Burma hump. Our publication called Flying Typers can trace its name back to the days of the AVG. Sometimes people will ask me, well, don't you mean Flying Tigers? When I tell them the name of the publication is Flying Typers. And no, I say, uh, actually, during World War II, Flying Tigers were both fighter pilots and also air transport pilots. In other words, the guys that were flying the C-46s and C-47s were technically flying Tigers. One story that sticks out in my mind is the day that our senior editor from the 1970s era, Edward Ansel Talbert, one of the most famous aviation journalists, the top aviation journalist in the 1930s and 40s at the New York Herald Tribune, was covering the air freight movements between Assam, India, and Kunming, China, with a group of reporters that included people like Claire Booth Luce, the editor of uh, Life magazine. She did some very famous pictures during that trip uh, that became immortal of the Flying Tigers. Not so much the transport pilot people, but the others. Talbert told me we were sitting in the uh, athletic club in New York during the time he was our senior contributing editor in the uh, 1980s and mid-1980s at uh, Air Cargo News. We were sitting in the club there and he was telling me about walking up to those airplanes, those C-46s, and they were carrying their little bag, a little black bag. And in the day, you know, you walk around today, for example, with a uh, computer a laptop or even an iPad at this point, but those guys would walk around with a little black case that carried a little typewriter in it. So they were walking up to the airplane and he overheard the uh, co-pilot uh, turn to the pilot and say, uh-oh, here come those expletive deleted flying typers. So I remember that when I went into digital. I remember the what Talbert told me how that happened and I never forgot it. Talbert was a fabulous character. He uh, I have pictures of him that I found. Well, I have to back up a little bit. When he died, nobody could find his family. He had dementia. He lived up in Connecticut and he commuted into New York. He was working for Travel Weekly, I think was his last regular uh, column. But, but his column, as I mentioned before, in the Herald Tribune was read everywhere in the world. I mean, we went up because when he died, he wrote my name down on, on a piece of paper. And then the uh, police got in touch with us. He lived in Bridgeport. And we, we drove up to try to assist any way we could. And we ended up uh, helping to clean out his place. We couldn't find any members of his family. He was to had total dementia. He was totally composed. He got himself together. You never knew we had a problem. 
and then he would go home and it would be, I don't know what it was like. It must have been terrible for him. But anyway, I don't want to leave this on a down thing because Talbert was a tremendous character. I looked through all of his papers and his 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 uh, uh, photo archives. There's a picture of him with Goering and Hitler in 1934-35 at an air show someplace. He's interviewing uh, Hermann Goering for crying out loud. He was there all over the world at that time, and and a very very famous guy, a great writer. And uh, anyway, so we uh, helped clean out his place and. Uh, I found some records. I knew that he had worked on Operation Ultra during World War II, which was the uh, situation over in the UK that bra- uh, broke the German code. And uh, he worked for uh, Jimmy Doolittle uh, when Doolittle ha- handled, handled the, uh, I think it was the Eighth Army. You'll have to check me. The military stuff I'm not too great on. But I know he worked for Doolittle, and then he got assigned to Ultra from there. And Doolittle was still alive and had written to me in 1980 when I met him at uh, JFK when we were, uh, he had been inducted into the uh, Bishop Wright, who was the uh, Bishop Wright Chapel, named after the uh, father of the Wright brothers, inducted uh, Doolittle into the Hall of Fame. And some years later, they inducted me into their Hall of Fame out there uh, as JFK Airport. But anyway, um, I wrote to him, I sent him a copy of the book with his picture in it that I wrote on Kennedy Airport, wrote a very nice letter back. And since I knew Talbert had worked for him, I called him up and I talked to his son and I asked him if he could help me uh, take care of Ed because I knew he was a military veteran. And within 30 minutes, the the, um, Arlington Cemetery called up and said, when do you want to bring him down? to the Arlington Chapel and walked in. There was place was filled with people, and and uh, including Paul Garber, the founder of the uh, National Air and Space Museum. And the pastor came over and he said, "Well, you're going to deliver some few words for Ansel Talbert." And sure, okay. Faye Wells was there, the the writer, the great aviation writer. A bunch of people that were writers and other people. Yeah, I remember we got done with that ceremony and uh, the 21 gun salute, the full military ceremony, and we had no member of his family. Uh, we all got together and went down to the National Press Club and uh, we, we took him out in proper Irish fashion. And the last man standing, I guess it was still me, I figured I better stay straight because one of us had to deliver the obit to the Washington Post. So we did that as well. Well, some years later, I did find his daughter, and uh, she was able to inherit a rather nice estate and all the rest of it. But uh, I do recall one thing about Talbert that I always thought was really great. Here's what it is. At the height of his power and fame, Ed created a book titled Great Airports of the World with General Doolittle writing the foreword. The hardcover book was maybe 100 pages and had some pictures and drawings and was aimed squarely at children. So here, without much fanfare, 
is the most influential aviation reporter in the world, admired and read everywhere, who later would also serve as a consultant to airline executives, and as I mentioned, the founder of the Wings Club. Together with the captain of the Cloud's aviation hero from the 1930s, who lifted America in 1942 at her darkest hour, flying a B-25 bomber off the rain-swept deck of the aircraft carrier Hornet, and then going on to bomb the thought of impenetrable Tokyo and Japan as World War II began. Both of these heroes had legions of people that would have paid money to walk down the street with them. Well, they skipped all of that, got together and collaborated on a book aimed at advancing the aviation experience for the next generation. They wrote a children's book. I've always thought of those two gentlemen working that scenario out with no small amount of admiration and respect. This is Jeffrey Arendt. Well, that does it for our broadcast today. That was fun, wasn't it? Thanks for joining us. Thank you for your time this time. Until next time. This is Jeffrey Aaron saying, keep them flying. Air Cargo. Goodbye.